very personal and existentially important subject. I want again, as I did last night, to place myself rather especially in God's hands. Because I think what I say tonight might affect some of you rather deeply. And I would not want to be an instrument of obstruction between your minds and the truth. And I'm sure you must appreciate what a weight that puts upon my shoulders. For tonight we are going to speak of chastity. G.K. Chesterton said when he saw the Venus of Milo that the sculptor who sculpted that statue must have understood chastity. And I think I understand what Chesterton means. Because the beauty of the woman's body is displayed in that statue most unprovocatively. It reminds me of a line in an Irish song. As she stood gently there. Now I'll tell you another thing. The people who are responsible for the commercials, or should I call them the advertisements, on the wa in the Washington Post, which I have to page through every morning to get the little tidbits of unimportant news they accidentally scatter among their advertisements. I say the ones who draw those pictures don't understand chastity at all. For it seems that one of the principles of commercialism at the moment is that we may, and indeed are fools if we do not, use the human body as a come-on for whatever particular nonsense we are trying to sell. You remember the TV commercial for Chevrolet? body by Fisher and you weren't sure whether it was the body of the Chevrolet or the body of the beautiful woman provocatively present there that they were referring to. In either case, in any case, the, the simple obscenity of much of our commercial advertising today clearly indicates that either those who are responsible for it do not understand at all what chastity is, or to put it in blunt and simple English, they couldn't care less. Thomas, when he speaks of this great subject, and incidentally, I must tell you, it is like, it is like reading exquisite sanity to read Thomas on this subject of chastity. He says, for instance, that man's problem with the sexual thing is not 
something that derives directly from man's nature. It is rather, and now realize Thomas is writing in the 13th century, it is rather due to the exploitation of man by man and the stimuli that are constantly sent to us by others in the interest of commercialism or power. Even in the 13th century, you see, men knew how to reduce the human body to the level of the harlot in the interest of commercialism. But I think what Thomas says is very important, though, because one of the pervasive convictions at the moment in our society, and indeed I find it very much and deeply embedded in the souls of some of you dear people that I have to deal with, one of the pervasive convictions is that we are powerless in the presence of the sexual drives. That finally, in other words, man has met his master here and that he will never be able to bring this matter under any kind of control of reason. Thomas disagrees with that, of course. I disagree with it absolutely, and I'm sure that you also, upon reflection, must know that God does not equip any of his creatures with a natural power which is necessarily destructive of the moral personality of that creature. In other words, it would be to bring a savage charge of injustice against God to say that he had placed in us a power that was so absolutely uncontrollable that we were forever, or at least until old age came, destined to live under its sway. No, God does not give us a power that is uncontrollable. Before we go in, though, to the precise problem of dealing with the bringing of the sexual under the sway of reason. Let us say a word or two as preliminary. Probably the basic problem today is that we are suspicious of the body. We are certainly careless of it. We consider it in our law as the equivalent of nothing, or we refer to it with polite evasiveness as the contents of the womb. And we kill our children simply because it would seem they are not yet able to utter their name or their father's or mother's name. It seems that we, in other words, place an awful lot of importance upon what I want, what my mind demands. And if the body has to serve that demand, fine. That's proper and right. After all, that is the principle that really is used to support much 
of the ugliness that is going on sexually at the moment. And I don't mean just the subjection of children to rape and molestation. I mean also the whole pervasive nonsense, nonsense indeed, as we will see, of homosexuality. The body is to be used as we choose. It has no dignity or beauty in itself. Now that is the most unchristian thing that we could say. That is indeed a resurrection of one of the oldest and most dreadful of heresies called the Manichaean heresy which says that only the things of the spirit and of light are good. The things of the body and of darkness are evil. And of course you can do what you choose with those evil things. And I want to remind you that that is one of the most ancient of heresies because it was first uttered in Eden Garden before man was exiled therefrom. You remember when Adam finally disobeyed his Lord and the Lord came to Eden calling him and Adam hid and the Lord sought him in that lovely story of scripture and finally he found him hiding like a rabbit in the bushes and he said why did you hide from me? And you remember Adam's answer. I was naked and ashamed. Why? He'd been naked since his creation. God had formed his body naked. Why suddenly is Adam ashamed? A psychologist needs to answer that. Why is it that we make the body the first scapegoat of our own sin? Why is it that even you, sophisticated and marvelous people, and myself too, will at times when we are feeling not so up to par as we normally are, why will we feed our faces with the worst possible foods we can find or the worst possible drinks we can find? Why go on a binge? The body has nothing to do with what is wrong with us. It is not the body's fault that we made that stupid error at the shop or at the office, which brought some ridicule properly upon us. It wasn't the body that did that. It was our own stupidity. Yet why is the body the first to be blamed? Again, I say psychologists can do a lot with that. But there is a tendency in us that is morbid precisely, to make the body the first victim of our sin. And that is with us today, as it was 
in that unworthy ancestor of ours who was the first to blame the innocent body. Thomas says, the body is unchangeably innocent. Now grab that, please. Even in the worst sin, especially in the worst sin, far from being guilty, the body is victim. It is innocent. This is perhaps the most profound insight of Thomas into the whole structure of God's creation. There is no evil in body. The tendencies that we speak of as a result of original sin are spiritual tendencies. What are they? A darkening of the understanding, for those of you who are old enough to remember the Baltimore Catechism, a darkening of the understanding which is not bodily, a weakening of the will which is not body again, and a strong inclination to evil which again is not body. Body is innocent. And one of the first things that I must try to impress upon a young person who has unfortunately become subject to habits of serious and sometimes personal and private sin sexually is to persuade, the first thing I must do is to persuade that person of the innocence and beauty of the body. For sin is not there. Sin is the absence of proper direction in the will. And it is that will that brings the body into subjection. How many of us realize, I mean, we are, we are so capable of insight in this field in other areas. We know, for instance, that upwards of what? 60% of the sicknesses in the United States are psychosomatic. That means that they are not physical at all. They are the effect upon the body of the diseased psyche, which ultimately is itself the effect of the diseased mind. So much of our problem with the whole business of sexuality is due to a false, brutally unreal attitude toward body. The first principle, therefore, is that body is innocent, always. It was formed to serve. It still serves. And the servant is not the one who is responsible for his master's crimes. It is the vision of the mind. 
It is the disease of the will that is at the basis of all intemperance, of all evil, in fact. Now the body can be sick, of course. The body can die and does. But it itself, its death, is the result of what? Sin. St. Paul says, through one man, sin entered into the world. And through sin, death. Let's get that clear in our minds to begin with. Let us at least shift away from this, this Manichaean thing that is present still in our world. And please, dear friends, the Manichaean thing is not just confined to those who do commercials for television or advertising for the post. The Manichaean thing is present in the minds of priests who refer to the depravity of sexual sins as though in some way it is depraved to become involved in any way with what God called good. We have that sleazy attitude in our minds, even the best of us. Thomas doesn't have it. <laughs> there is no man freer in the world of any attitude of sleaziness toward the beauty of the body than the celibate 300 pound Aquinas great-grandson of Frederick Barbarossa, by heavens, and if you think there wasn't passion in those genes and chromosomes, you don't know those people. Second cousin of Henry II, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, first cousin of St. Louis of France. That is the Thomas I'm talking about. And there isn't a sleazy bone in his body. And he loves what God has made. And he knows that when God shaped the body of Adam and the body of Eve, he didn't stop at the genitals. He shaped them too, for they have a purpose and a nobility and a beauty. And Thomas goes so far as to say, their good is a sublime good, because through them, the kingdom of God is peopled with children. No sleaziness there. No element of the Manichees there. The acknowledgement of the beauty of the body, the acknowledgement of the beauty of the vision of the body, which is even more important. Because bodies still are beautiful. Dear God, we sell them all over the place like so much hamburger meat because they're beautiful. They're attractive to the weird, sex-crazed people because they are beautiful. But it is the vision of the body that lacks beauty today. And it is that vision that needs to be restored. <coughs> Thomas says in one section of his Summa Theologiae, he says something about the mighty passion of the sexual experience. 
which of course rather surprises me because obviously for him it was hearsay. <coughs> but I remember one time in New York I was asked to give a, a, a conference on, on, on the Holy Family, the paradigm of all families. And I went up there, poor peasant that I am in that high, marvelous society. And I glanced at the group of people and they were all so dreadfully, sinfully sad and solemn. And then I heard the lady who preceded me speak about the whole sexual experience as though it were the most serious task before us folks, you know. And I said to the dear lady in charge, Nona Aguilar, you may know Nona, some of you. I said, Nona, I'm not going to speak on that subject you assigned me. She said, you did that to me once before, I will not have it again. I said, I will not speak on it. She said, all right, what do you want to speak on? I said, I want to speak on the humor of sex. She said to them, <laughs> I said to them precisely, she said, I will, not I, I will not introduce you. I won't. I said, then I shall introduce myself. And I did, I, I, I spoke, and listen, it was the hardest presentation I ever made in my life. And I began by telling them that, of course, all that I would say on the subject of the sexual experience was indeed hearsay. But I had some very good sources, you see. And there wasn't a smile among them. They were dead. <laughs> Talk about something falling right on your toes, you know, right where you have a corn. It was terrible. It was terrible. I was, I was a quarter of an hour into my poor efforts to be light and tripping before I saw the shadow, the faintest little ghost of a smile on one face. And, and oh, I thought, what a victory that was. <laughs> and we ended up, we ended up marvelously. We, we saw, of course, that it is precisely the humor that is required in the sexual experience, since humor is the recognition of proportion. And when the sexual is put into its proper pr proportion, it is beautiful. And those of you who practice it, for God's sake, know that you need humor for it. <laughs> right? Tell me, tell me, for instance, about headaches, will you? Will you tell me about headaches? Hmm? Hmm. I hear about those, you know. I, you, you tell me about those sometimes in the confessional. Uh, mm. Yes, it's like that lovely story, a lovely story told by C.S. Lewis in his Four Loves, which incidentally you should read, everybody should read the Four Loves. And he speaks about really the, the humor of, of Eros and how Eros plays with us at times. Is it? He's talking about this relatively newly married couple who give a cocktail party. And, and uh, oh, the, the place is just swimming with marvelous people, the, 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 new, the new crowd, you know, all, all upward mobile, uh, healthy, solid Yankees, the whole bunch of them, you see. <laughs> and, and, and halfway through the cocktail party, the, the husband's eyes meet his wife's eyes across the so-called crowded room. <laughs> and, and the message is conveyed with eloquence, oh boy. We could write a symphony now if we had the chance, you see. But all of these wretched people are here, so, but wait, hmm, wait. Hmm. And so the people put on a few more 
belts of booze and then leave. And then it is, the, I mean, it is wide open. Everything is there. Everything is possible. I mean, Eros now has his way. But unfortunately, I'll not say which of them develops a headache. Mm -hmm. mm. I'm sure you have to be humorous. In fact, the British say, and you know how the British are in these matters, especially those who are still somewhat tainted by the Victorian thing, you say. <laughs> the Victorian thing. You simply didn't speak about it, you say. Mm, yes. And, and, and your Britisher will, will suggest that the whole business of having sex is slightly indelicate. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> well, anyway, of course it is, in a sense, actually, it is. But, again, the beauty here is that it is good. And Thomas, when he speaks of it, I repeat, you see, I haven't forgotten my train of thought. He is speaking by hearsay. And in one of his, of his marvelous theses in the Summa Theologiae, one of the opponents says, because the sexual experience, due to its high level of passion, takes away the power of spiritual reasoning, which after all is man's highest power. You can almost hear this fellow speaking with a British accent. It is after all, you know, man's highest power, and therefore one simply shouldn't take it away, you see. And the sexual thing does, you see. Therefore, at least, the sexual thing must be considered something <clears throat> slightly improper. What is Thomas's answer? If your reasoning is correct, kind sir, then it is also evil to sleep, for sleep also takes away the power of reason. What a lovely turning of an argument. I mean, how economic of words that is. How adroit, how splendid. This man would have been, I mean, the, the swordsmen of his past were present there, you see. He turned that thing aside with a brilliant twist of the wrist and <clears throat> broke the guard. Hmm? But then the opponent comes back. All right, all right, Conchedo, I grant. It can't be considered evil. But. Hmm. If man had not fallen, then God would have devised some less messy way to make babies. Maybe something more angelic. Okay. Now Thomas's answer is eloquent. Not so, he said. Not so. In fact, before man fell, the sexual experience was more pleasurable was. Clearly, Thomas sees it as something practiced in Eden before man fell. It was more full of pleasure, if for no other reason than that man's body was not coarsened by sin. How beautiful. That is the affirmation of the goodness of the sexual thing. Its beauty, its purpose, its design, its exalted place in man's life. 
that stands. No matter how we will disagree as a people on how reason is to control the sexual urges, what must stand among us unless we are incapable of debate is the essential goodness of body and the essential and indeed transcendent goodness of the sexual experience. That stands. In fact, Thomas again says, and saying it reveals a whole area of beauty. He says only they who have brought the sexual power under the sway of reason, only they are capable of any pleasure, of any pleasure. Now that adds a curious note. In other words, the one who is controlled by this because he has turned it about upon himself is incapable of the pleasure of sex and is incapable of the pleasure of the spring or the pleasure of friendship or the pleasure of a good meal because he has twisted this beautiful thing and made it serve himself. Before I go into that though, let, let's be sure that we understand what is meant by bringing the, the whole sexual experience under the influence of reason. Obviously we're not saying or using reason in a contemporary sense. In other words, in contradistinction to revelation. According to reason for Thomas means according to the real. And the real includes the world and God and revelation. The mind knows, no, we don't say knows. The mind brings truth into itself through two main roadways and through another that is less known to us. The two main ones are the exercise of ordinary knowledge where we examine the world about us and are hungry for the vestiges of God that are found in that world.
The other great road which brings truth into the mind is when we listen to Jesus speak about the matters that he knows, the matters of God, of the Trinity, of providence, of God's love, of the creation of man, of the redemption of man. The whole business of sacred history is part of what Thomas calls reason. And then, of course, there is the other, less well-known road, the whole area of the intuitional, where we, we sense things without either knowing them or believing them. Thomas refers to a mode of knowledge by connaturality. But all of these things are brought together when Thomas says that the sexual powers must be brought under the sway of reason. He doesn't mean reason then of the enlightenment, neither does he mean this craziness that contemporary sexual education experts talk about, that you must draw pictures of everything and show them to kindergarten children. He's not talking about that. Because it is unreasonable to do that. He's talking about that majestic attentiveness to reality, which is reason. That attentiveness of the mind, that, that, that almost humble and reverent presence of the mind to the objectivity of other things, to the being of other things, and now, of course, to the being of the body itself. For chastity deals with the body. In a simple sentence, Thomas says that chastity orders the sexual in such a way that its proper and only expression is within marriage. Now that's putting it pretty flat on the line. Chastity orders, and now chastity is the ordering of the sexual according to reason. Chastity orders that the proper and only exercise of the sexual, of the sexual powers, is within marriage. He says, the commonality of life that is suggested by the very physical construction of the male and female bodies, which of course has its origin in, or the theory and notion has its origin in, the unitary origin of Eve and Adam from the same clay. For Adam was made from clay, but Eve was made from Adam. And that complementarity, that, that community of life that Thomas calls it, is the expression of and the only apt and just expression of the sexual exercise. Within that, reason still must be followed because within that sacred complementary relationship, aberrations also can occur and cruelties can occur. Yes, certainly. 
But only within that may the sexual experience be expressed properly and justly. Any other expression of the sexual, Thomas says, is not only against the sixth commandment, but is also against justice. That's a curious one. How could, for instance, personal sin, sexual sin, be against justice? I don't think it's just a matter of pig pen in peanuts. I think that something happens, you see. When someone is devoted to personal sin, is devoted to it, is committed to it, is not trying to overcome it, that person is engaged in an effort to change the attitudes of man toward the creation of God. So says Thomas. Maybe it would be more clearly expressed as that good Lutheran physician in Germany who wrote a book supporting Humane Vitae, the Pope's encyclical on contraception. He said, and when I read it, I was shocked, and yet there is some truth in it. He said, the priests who oppose the Pope's teaching on contraception have themselves problems with sexuality. See, it is again the mind's understanding that is important. It is the will's direction led by the light of truth that is important. And the light of truth does indicate that personal private sin in the area of sex is self-oriented entirely, has nothing of the generosity of mind, has nothing of the creativity that sex exists for, has nothing of the complementarity that sex exists for, or that sex expresses. So similarly, homosexuality, If you want the mind or the, the willful mind of the individual man to be the dominant thing, of course, he can do what he jolly well please with the body. But again, where is the complementarity of homosexuality? Where is the expressive beauty of it? Where is the, the, the commonality of life? Where is the child? Where is the familiar? Where is the domestic church in any of it? Isn't there? Unchastity is a twisting of the whole purpose of the sexual around to serve the self. Unchastity is the twisting about 
of the whole sexual experience to serve the self. Thomas, when he tries to find an image to express the, the unchaste man, uses the expression of the image, the hungry lion. The hungry lion, when he sees the deer, has only one thing in mind, and that is to kill and eat. But that is natural in the lion. When the sexual thing has been permitted to become so twisted that it serves only the self, the unchaste man, like the lion, sees, if he's naturally inclined, all women as objects to be consumed. And if he is unnaturally inclined, he says, all men, all boys, Whatever else appeals to the twisted thing. Again, the hungry life. The refusal to be just. To give himself now, even his own body, its due. But to give especially the other person what is truly due. That is basic to all unchastity. And of course, what then is created in our society is the terrifying thing. When the attitude towards sex becomes pervasive, namely that sex is simply an instrument of self-gratification, when that becomes pervasive, as it largely is now among the beautiful people in the United States, then our kids are in danger. Oh, Christ, are they in danger? Who is to tell them, you see, that they shouldn't grab whatever they can get whenever they can get it? Since the whole thing is gratification, since man has reduced the most beautiful instrument of community that he possesses, has reduced it to something that resembles the hunger of the growling, roaring lion. And he's a consumer in the area of sex, as he's in the area of food, in the area of automobiles. He's a consumer in every area. He's a pack rat in the whole area. Because he has twisted the whole beauty, the, the, the objective shape of things, he has twisted. He must be contraceptive, of course, because he can't be embarrassed with children. And abortions are still just a little expensive, you see. He must be contraceptive in this age. This is incidentally what that doctor saw and what Malcolm Muggeridge saw in Paul VI, Humane Vitae. The essential connection between the beauty of the sexual and the child. And one other connection that I bet most of you fail to see. 
the connection between the sexual experience and the very structure of the moral person. For Paul says in that document, the sexual behavior is not like any other form of human behavior, for it alone involves the building up of the human personality or the tearing down of it. We are not unchaste then casually. We are unchaste destructively. Thomas says, unchastity blinds. Blinds the eye of the soul. So that the eye of the soul can see nothing now but what satisfies the hunger of the disordered self. And so it is that some of us are now probably, if not compulsively involved, largely involved in this dreadful suffering condition of not being able to look at anything purely and admire anything for its own sake. I mean, the adolescent who, who is trying to display his manhood is to be understood and to be forgiven when he whistles at the beautiful young still somewhat awkward teenager sashaying down the high school corridor. He's to be pitied. He's still only a boy. His manhood is still as, as flimsy as an eggshell. But how about the man who is supposed to be in possession of himself, to use Thomas's phrase again. The chaste man is in possession of himself. Therefore only the chaste man can give himself. The unchaste man is driven. And all things he sees are seen through the dreadful dulled glass of his own mind. And even in his religion, he can't think of the Virgin herself purely, so depraved, so destroyed. This is power of vision. And not only is his power of vision destroyed, but so disordered has become his his sort of will, his power to choose, that that is beyond him now. He no longer can say no. He is chained. And only a miracle of God's grace can save him. And in the execution of his life, he may happen at times to be chased. But it's only because he couldn't manage the other. This is a pitiful image of a man.
And yet, it is the image of a man who has gone the road of unchastity. And now, please, what time did I start this thing, Mary Oh, I the lovely. Yes, thank you. Thomas has a very important distinction to make now, and it's, it's a consolation as well as being so beautifully true. All the, the terrible things he has said about the destructive nature of, Im, of unchastity. Notice he doesn't say impurity, unchastity. All of that applies only to the man who is unchaste in the sense of intemperate. Now here language is going to be stretched a little bit, but it's important to stretch it. It is the man who is intemperate, unchaste by being un intemperate, who is so destroyed because Thomas says, and indeed Aristotle says the same thing almost five centuries before Christ. Almost the same thing. Because this man has ruined himself to the deepest level of his powers of choice. The, the unchaste thing has gone into him so deeply that he is truly unchaste to the depth of his consciousness. It is unchastity as intemperance then that is so terribly destructive. It is, and Thomas uses the, the word, it is as though now intemperance were second nature to him. And he is no longer sorry that he sins. In fact, now, he sees sin as a kind of victory. And Christ's words come to mind. The reason this generation is condemned, the light came among them, but they loved the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds are evil and if they bring them to the light their evil nature will be shown but they keep them in darkness this is unchastity as second nature so deep that the person who is subject to it is practically incapable of conversion. So destroyed is his power of vision, so weakened is his power of choice, so channeled is his mode of behavior. But now, unchastity as incontinence, which is the ordinary fellow's problem with unchastity, I think. The one, in other words, who knows that chastity indeed is the demand by reason 
that I refrain from all forms of sexual behavior unless I am married. The ordinary man or woman holds that in mind, believes that, but is, well, attacked successfully by the dreadful, dreadful mm, things that oppress us in our age. Or maybe one stupid day because the chap is feeling fairly bad, he'll go out and buy a dirty movie. And he'll go home and he'll watch it and, and he'll, he'll, he'll go through just a, a series of, of dreadful stupidities and then feel like a wretch and come to confession and say, Father, I, I did that stupid thing again and I'm sorry. Such a one is not all that much condemned by Thomas. In fact, unlike many of our moral theologians, unlike the moral theologians, in fact, I studied as, as a candidate for the priesthood, who seemed to consider that the greatest sin of all was a sin against purity, as they said. Unlike those, and unlike a variety of others, the great Saint Hilary, for instance, whom Thomas quotes, who suggests that most people go to hell because of these sins. Thomas said, the one who is subject, not regularly, but at times, to unchastity as incontinence is not so guilty because he is frequently oppressed by a gust of passion and passion lessens culpability. You see how careful we have to be then? As confessors, we have to distinguish carefully between the honest, good man and God love you, there are many of you in the world, and I respect you, who is faithful, but who goes off on the business trip and has this moment of weakness, and there's no, no infidelity to his wife with other women, but there's this this thing and he gives in and he he feels like a rat or a louse or, or or wretched after it I'm not worried about that man he's honest he knows the truth God will ultimately give him the grace and the strength to be strong and chaste for the beauty of chastity as temperance is that a man can stand in the worst possible set of circumstances and be attacked from all sides by a dozen whores and say no. Thomas is that type of man. You can feel it in him. And when Alcibiades praises Socrates, 
That's one of the things he praises Socrates for. He, Alcibiades, tempted Socrates savagely to sexual aberration one time. And Socrates withstood it calmly, without any insult or roughness or anything else to the young Alcibiades. But as Alcibiades said, when morning came, Socrates had dealt with me as though he were my father or my brother. Chastity, once it has become second nature, needs little self-control. The art of being chaste has been learned. We look at every woman and see the Venus of Milo or the person. We look at all things and see them, if not pure in deed, then pure in intent. We try to empty ourselves of selfishness in all matters. Matters of food, matters of drink, matters of our need for rest and our need for adulation of one kind or another. We train ourselves like soldiers. And we are then strong deep down because deep down we know that what is beautiful in this area comes from God and that we love and what is not beautiful is the result of man's savagery to man and we will have none of it and what is more we will not add to the ugly content of whatever new sphere of unchastity that we are living in now. We will not add to that by betraying chastity, even in the most private and the most casual way, in our own thoughts. We will love what is true. We will love the body. We will honor it. We will be provident with it. Now please, I mean, I don't have to say this to you. If a man jumps into the swimming pool and it's full of water, and he shouts as he jumps in that he doesn't want to get wet, you're not going to believe him. So similarly, the man who is devoted to chastity and to the beauty that God has put into all of these matters and who goes to the local whatever kind of bar they have down there, you must begin to wonder about that fellow. I mean, either he has mastered the thing completely and he's going in there to save all the souls around, <laughs> which I doubt. Or there's something inconsistent between what he says and what he does. Dear ones, let me finish by saying only the one who possesses himself can ultimately give himself to anyone. 
And the one who possesses himself is the one who through God's grace and irrespective of what is fashionable has seen the beauty that God's hands made and has learned to love it and honor it in his thoughts and in his will and in his actions. And only he ultimately or she ultimately will be able to say with the great Lord whose body was destroyed because our bodies are so, so pampered. Say with him, I say, Father, into thy hands I give my still free spirit. God bless you all. You're very patient. Thank you.